Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am your only host today, Teos Abadia, my partner in crime, Sean Merwin. He is traveling and he has uh, laptop issues and Wi-Fi issues. And uh, those are just the technological issues. So yeah, uh, I am just going to go through the news right now. So if you're watching, there will be one episode, one part of the episode out currently. And then the actual audio podcast and an interview with a guest uh, will be up tomorrow, a day after this initially dropped. Normally it's on Wednesdays, uh, but the whole of it will now be out on Thursday for this week only as we adjust for the missing Sean. All right. So first question from our listener, Biotic Hamster, via our Patreon Discord. It seems to me as a latecomer to 5e that there was a genuine desire in the 5e design to favor DM fiat in the rules. I'd love to hear folks who were there on the ground during the D&D Next playtest discuss that. Was that a real decision the designers made relative to other editions? This is a really cool question. Um, what it's really looking into is the idea of DM fiat is DM, DM makes the calls, right? And the rules are open enough that you make the calls. This was super popular in older editions uh, where things were not laid out and the DM could interpret even when there were, were rules, they were worded so strangely that the DM still made the calls to how the game ran at their table. And you'd find each table ran very differently. So did D&D Next aim to do that for the 2014 version of 5e? Um, yeah, uh, I went back when this excellent question hit our, our Patreon Discord and I listened again to that great, and I've linked to it again in the show notes, um, and I know we linked to it in a previous episode. Uh, I listened to the great D&D Next postmortem video that Mike and Rodney did, two of the designers, uh, Rodney Thompson, Mike Merles did, um, just after D&D Next finished and the 2014 books were coming out. And they talked about how they went back to look at old editions, wondering how it was that in these old editions, the rules had no guidance for some areas of play, including big areas like role play, right? <laughs> uh, but everyone did it anyway. So what was it in the absence of rules that would guide good play? Why did it work? What were the editions doing that made that feel and work so well? And they found that old editions often had rules that dictated only about 30% of gameplay, like most of what you think of a session, you play for an hour, 30% of that time were things that weren't addressed at all in the rules, right? What you, what you were doing was not in the rules. It's amazing. Um, and they saw that newer editions added complexity and, and tried to fill in these holes, but often then didn't create such a great play experience. And when complexity was added, it was often because the designers understood the basics so well that they would add more on top of what they already understood. But this was a lot for new players to take on. So the D&D Next designers created what they called the high wall. And before they would add any rule to 5e, the, the rule had to prove itself as being incredibly efficient, very easy to learn, and really worth it. Uh, in fact, they said that it had to support the game's goals and serve the game in multiple ways. So it, it, a rule couldn't just do one thing. It had to do multiple things, which is really fascinating. Um, they also worked to remove barriers for new players or those who played older editions to come up to speed with a new edition to make the game super approachable. So yeah, it really was a thing in 2014 to open up the game, remove rules were not needed, and empower the DM. Um, they talk a little bit of that more in, in one of the multi-part series videos that isn't this particular video of Link to. Um, but they too, do talk about how the game often doesn't need rules. Uh, like they'll say, like, you don't need mechanics to play an elf, right? There's very little that you learn about what an elf is. And then you just go off with it based on all the things you know about the world. Um, and that is certainly something they did. So, yeah, it is interesting to see how 2024 is maybe trying to do more to fill in some of those spaces that are there currently in the game um and does that mean that the, the game becomes too predictable and doesn't feel loose or open enough it's a good question next listener question andrew b good to see you again andrew via twitter is the lack of wow they knocked this out of the park 
reactions to the D&D 2024 playtest a concern. Sure, they learned from druids, crit changes, sneak, etc. But is it concerning that they are so wrong about the approach in the first place? This is a really interesting question. Um, <laughs> I want to kind of go, yes, it's concerning. But, <laughs> yes, but. Uh, it is not concerning that they get things wrong. So a play test is where you want to get things wrong. Um, D&D Next did this all the time, since the last question was talking about this. Uh, it would experiment with something like expertise dice instead of skill ranks or skill proficiencies. And they would not see good results, so then they'd try something else, right? And in design, getting things wrong and actually in life <laughs> is fantastic. In fact, teachers are more and more from like my generation and newer te teachers of, of newer generations are saying, hey, you actually want people to students to fail all the time. And that's true in design as well. You learn more from getting your design wrong than by getting it right. And, and right is easy because you just pat yourself on the back. Oh, yeah, what I did is great. But it takes the right kind of questions and, and, and uh, uh, cross-examination, teamwork, and playtesting to show, hey, yeah, this doesn't work for me. And here is why, right? That teaches you a lot about design and helps you make things better. So in, in this current 1D&D 2024 5e design the concern that i would have is less that some things are wrong to begin with and more that we are not seeing the design attempts focus on clear themes or goals so if we look at dnd next there were these really clear attempts to modernize the game while speaking to its roots and you could play the various iterations and playtests that came out many with things that they got wrong and that never got into the final rules but you could see that there was a an attempt to, to fulfill those goals, right? Like we we're talking about DM Fiat earlier, to open up the game, to make things less uh, programmable and reproducible, more open, more interpretable, more, more of a judgment call, and to open up how people approach situations with their characters that it wasn't so siloed and, and predictable. Um, 2024 has it a little tough because it is trying to be a revision, right? It's trying to say... I'm taking the same game and I'm just sort of polishing it. And so in that sense, it doesn't need to have new goals. It's just polish it. But I think that it does need goals and, and it hopefully does have goals. And, and those goals have not been clear, uh, which is why I'm talking about this. So the themes that you would expect of 2024 might be it's simpler so that more players can grab it more easily. Or it's more narrative because we see so many players learning by watching live streams. We see so many players wanting to have a greater narrative. There's less of that mechanical, just crunchy thing. That might be what you'd expect as a theme, as a goal. But arguably, if you look at the Unearthed Arcanas, the game that we're seeing makes 2024 more complex, potentially harder to pick up for new players. So we can take something like crit changes or inspiration changes. And the worry to me isn't that, they attempt, that the attempt failed but rather that it isn't clear why this was the attempt. So like crits are super fun for players, right? I run all these tables all the time. And when somebody crits, we celebrate. In fact, I laughed when the crit under Tharkana came out because just before that, there'd been the like two different examples of live streams that D&D played a part in, their staff played a part in, where crits were like the end of the, the event. You know, like that's how Vecna died or that's how I forget what the other person, you know, was defeated with on a crit. Like crits were this huge moment. And so then take crits and lessen when they apply, when they could come up was such an interesting failure, right? It's not just a failure, but it's a failure just conceptually, not even mechanically. Um, inspiration, similar to me, inspiration to me is an attempt they did in 2014 to encourage a stronger narrative. So if you go and take away uh, that narrative and you just say, well, inspiration is just like a candy you get for rolling dice. That can be fun and it can be engaging, but it's sort of in the wrong direction compared to what you'd think the direction they want to be is, if that makes sense. So that's, that's a great example of where like inspiration might be super fun that when you roll an even number, you get this, right? But it's not thematic. It doesn't accomplish your goals. And so that's where I'd say that, that I look at and it, and it can apply to anything, right? Feats, uh, we're told feats are used by fewer than half of all playgroups. 
but they're getting pushed onto all new players regardless of whether they like it or not. Um, Epic Boons, we're told very few groups play at high levels. And I don't think we have a lot of data about the people who do play at high levels, but hey, Epic Boons. And it just seems like that is the approach no matter what. And it doesn't seem to line up specifically to these larger goals. So I think the important part is learning. And I would say, because maybe this sounds kind of harsh, I'm not trying to be harsh, I'm trying to be analytical. Um, the important part is learning. And I, one of the things that I really love about the D&D Next story is the 5e Rogue. So the 5e Rogue contains all these things in it that were never part of the playtest. Literally, the design team learned from everything that took place in the D&D Next process and then designed essentially a class we had not seen before. And it's one of the best designed of all the 5e uh, 2014 classes, right? So we can hope for that. We can hope that all of these things, it will crystallize together for the team and they'll come up with a better place. Awesome question. All right. Craig of Inspiration via Twitter on our last question here asks, what's your go-to adventure for new players? Hmm. Um, so I have a couple of, of, of go-tos uh, that I'll list. And I also have some thoughts around it. So a uh, great adventure that's written specifically for new groups and for new DMs is Scott Gray's Hidden Halls of Hazakor. There are links to all these in the show notes. Uh, so especially if you're a new DM, this is great. It provides an excellent uh, example of like what I think this question kind of gets to, which is like, what do you want to provide as an adventure for new players is generally something that delivers on their hope of the experience, right? Player expectations are, I'm going to touch on fantasy themes. I'm going to probably go in a dungeon. I'm going to fight interesting monsters. There are going to be like ruins and old things, and it'll feel like I would think a fantasy adventure would, right? Um, and this delivers on that. It tries to kind of hit tropes, takes you back to the town and then to the dungeon. And, and it really has great introductory information and, and really hand, hand holds you through the experience, which is awesome. Um, another one, Sean's, in, since he's not here, I can talk about his stuff. Uh, his intros that he wrote for Adventures League, especially Defiance in Flan, P-H-L-A-N, and Treasure of the Bo Broken Horde. Those two adventures have short, like 30 to hour long, 30 minute to an hour long adventures that all can link together. You can play them sometimes even in any order, some of them. Um, but they're really short, awesome sessions that are full of neat play uh, that is the kind of play you want to introduce to new players. And so those of us who've run these over and over again at conventions, like we know that tables just are super happy playing these. Great examples of things you can go to. From the classics, Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh is awesome, and it's been, you know, updated uh, to 5th edition officially, so you can use that. But that's a kind of neat experience, kind of mystery, going into a haunted manor to see what's going on. Really good. But anything that gives you that sort of relatively iconic indie fantasy experience is going to work well. And the most important thing is that you are going to be excited to run it. That's what will convey. If you can give players excitement, right? Never DM for new players like you're falling asleep and whatever. And I've seen this a million times. No, you want to be excited and right. Let that like your eyes should glow so that their eyes will glow and they'll get excited. Uh, anything that you're going to really have fun running will work. But if possible, choose something that gives you a little more of an iconic experience. And any of these three would be fantastic. Okay, so those were listener questions. And now uh, I and uh, my pretend Sean. Uh, let's see, we were using our Kuotoa yeah, there. So we'll all use uh, Sean Moore and the Frog Hemoth for this next section. <laughs> we'll do our, uh, our news and commentary. So there was some, uh, some, there was some official news coming from D&D &D this week. They had a new video and a community update. Uh, so we've seen a lot of these recently. The latest video and the community update kind of work hand in hand to try to clarify some concepts we've heard before. That 1D&D was a temporary name to capture all of the company's endeavors, from the core book updates to the VTT to D&D Beyond. And I guess people got confused. Like Sean and I talked about this. To, this, to us, it was pretty clear that 1D&D, they did say early on, was a placeholder. But clearly that got lost, and some folks thought maybe it's called 1D&D. Um, yeah. So, and then even the other part of confusion is that 
you know, we even heard in official interviews that they would call it like it's like a 5.5 or what is it? You know, they're pretty clear it wasn't a 60, but it wasn't clear how they're approaching it. And so now they're really being clear about this is fifth edition. It's just the, the version of it that's coming out in 2024. And they said that to try to be clear about what they're talking about, designers will, just as we have, Sean and I have been on the show, they'll say 2014 or 2024 so that you know which version they're talking about. And what they did say that I thought was interesting, this is where Sean and I would laugh a bit, is they said once the game is out, they will drop using the year. And I know Sean would have a good <laughs> laugh about that because good luck with that. Uh, players are going to be talking, communities are going to be talking, and you're going to have to refer to the old thing. Uh, we saw this when 5e first came out. They didn't want to call the game 5e. They just wanted to call it D&D. And it's like, well, good luck with that because people have to be able to say, what game are you playing? I'm playing 5th edition, right? You can't say, I'm playing 4th edition versus D&D. It's all D&D. So I think that we'll continue to see that you have to say 2024 5e when you're referring to something that's specific to that new rule set. And the more that the game is changing, even if it's fully compatible, you're going to see that continue. We'll see. Um, the video also explains that 5e is continuing because it continues to grow and sell well. There's no reason to stop it. It's been 10 years and they want to see this game go another 10 years. And so that's why they're doing this polish and this work. Okay. Then they do add a couple little interesting bits. They say they are rethinking subclasses. They for sure do still want you to get your subclass always at third. Right, an attempt to standardize all classes getting a subclass at third. But uh, oh, and they also say that you they see levels one and two as getting your feet wet. Okay, uh, but after you start your subclass, they're going to experiment with giving out subclass features at varying levels, not at the same levels that they were always coming out. The next UA is going to revisit the experts and the cleric that they called it priest in the video, which is interesting. Uh, and you will now get the old subclass progression that used to have, and it'll differ by class. And that's really curious. I, um, I thought that all of this movement of the subclass to start at third came from the Strixhaven project, where they realized that when they wanted to give you a subclass that would be like an academic course of study that would help any class be enrolled, basically enrolled in school, right? They wanted to be able to do this at common levels where you gave these same features, which is a really fun idea. Hey, your subclass will be setting-based, but for that to work, we need you to all get it at the same time. So why are we moving away from that after all this work? I don't know. And, and I don't know that... I think that if classes were so incredibly different one from the other that you needed to have certain gaps, like if you knew that, like, say, oh, a fighter gets feats every other level, then maybe you have a problem with odd even you know where can the subclass fit in but to me the the classes are so overall similar or, or at least not asimilar that you would think the subclasses should tell sort of a consistent story and progression and the point of them is to engage and you could standardize it but but yeah that's interesting so uh you can check out the video on dnd beyond and read the dndbeyond.com community update uh blog if you want to know more and just hours ago, the D&D Adventurers League had a stream on D&D Beyond. Head of organized play Chris Tulak was on the D&D Beyond stream to provide an overview of Adventurers League. He has been on Mastering Dungeons before. And uh, he, um, there are a couple of things that came out news-wise. It was generally a very good introduction of the way organized play works, what Adventurers League is, the different ways you can play it, where you can find rules and all of that. Uh, so if you're curious about AL, this is an excellent stream. We've provided the link in our show notes. I don't know if this will go on to their YouTube channel. Sometimes these do, sometimes they don't. Uh, but definitely check it out. The, uh, they said that the dndwizards.com Adventures League site is being updated. I don't know if they mean going to D&D Beyond or if this actually is being updated. But if you need files of the rules, there have been recent posts on the D&D Discord that pull everything into one place. So this is an excellent time. If you're looking for files, you want to make sure you have all of the rules. You can finally get them at least in one place for now. Um, I don't know why it's so hard to have these rules all in one place, but it is. 
and right now you can finally get them. Uh, they also said that Planescape will be part of AL, and there will be a dungeon craft program to support it, meaning that you, a creator, can create your own Planescape adventure to be played as part of the official Adventures League by following the Dungeon Craft program rules. So there will be at some point a release about that. You can't post anything yet to the DMs Guild, but they will at some point provide the rules for that specific to Planescape, and you'll be able to write for it. Very cool. Moving away from D&D, ooh, this one's an interesting one. Upper Deck has sued Ravensburger, Ravensburger, uh, the game company, over the Disney Lorcana game. So Disney Lorcana is a card game, and Upper Deck is, is suing Ravensburger over it. And this is an interesting case that could have some impact on the discussion you often hear of you can't copyright mechanics, right? Um, because that's something that people always say as if it's like, of course, true. But a lot of lawyers will point out, well, we haven't really tested this in a true gaming context. We can't be 100% sure that that will fly. And what happened was that an employee under a non-disclosure agreement developed a card game called Rush of Ecor for Upper Deck. That employee then left and was hired by Ravensburger, where he developed the Disney Lacana game. And he was under a non-disclosure, uh, I think a non-disclosure agreement. So Upper Deck is saying that Disney Lacana uses nearly identical mechanics and that this violates the trade secrecy in the non-disclosure. So this may center more on non-disclosure and trade secrecy than on really the case of mechanics, but underlying this is that issue of similar mechanics. And so it could be have a really interesting repercussion. Now, usually these kinds of courses, these kinds of cases end up being settled out of, out of court, but there's some big names here with Disney and, and Ravensburger. Ravensburger is an enormous company. Um, so, so is Upper Deck. So it could be very interesting to see what happens if they, so far, um, uh, uh, is saying that this is completely baseless. The court date is set for November, which is after Lurkana launches. So we shall see how this goes. Shout out to Rivals of Waterdeep who had their final stream. This groundbreaking show, Rivals of Waterdeep, um, has had a storied run across five years, 15 seasons, and 152 episodes, all beginning with the live game they had at the Stream of Many Eyes, which was the event run by D&D for the Waterdeep Dragon Heist Adventure. And I fondly remember watching that first stream of Rivals of Waterdeep and how much fun that was. Uh, and I also tuned in for the last one, as well as many in between. And Rivals has had an interesting story because it was one of the official streams for the D&D channel for a while and then was dropped and its support didn't continue. So it then worked hard to try to have fan support through all of it. Rivals rotated DMs, which was a really neat thing, showcasing different styles and approaches. And of course, they had an all POC cast, which made it really groundbreaking in the area. I don't know that it was the first and someone can correct me on that. Um, but it was certainly one of the most prominent and really showcased the level of talent that we have in our industry. It's a show that was really overdue in our hobby and the, at the same time, the right stream for the time. Um, and it was great to watch the farewell. It was full of memories and tears, really looking back on the amazing characters, all the heart that was poured into the series by the cast, by the DM. So congratulations to everyone involved with Rivals. And uh, and really an incredible run, really impactful series. Thank you for that. I uh, also want to highlight that D&D Beyond had an awesome blog called Nine Queer Creators to Follow This Pride Month. And uh, writer Alyssa Vischer highlights nine queer creators, their projects, their stories. Really an excellent article featuring some excellent creators that Sean and I have had an opportunity to work with. Uh, some of them, and hopefully we can work with the others in the future. Um, a really nice article, nice way of spotlighting, uh, again, the level of talent we have in, in, our, in our hobby. And hopefully we'll see more articles like this from D&D Beyond. Two more pieces to cover. One is Core 20, the RPG with Scott Gray, friend of the show. Scott Gray has been previewing his upcoming Core 20 role-playing game. And in this one he focuses on backgrounds and languages and he, there's come some nice pieces of design here one is the cool observation that in a fantasy world with a lot of danger 
sign language would make a lot of sense, right? To be able to quietly communicate to one another. Um, I wish I had learned sign language for many a secret conversation, uh, as well as non-secret ones. Um, but you know, that this should be more prevalent in the world. And so he comes up with rules for that and, 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 uh, writes about that in, in this update. Uh, he also has some neat ideas on backgrounds, which boost a set of skills rather than granting proficiency in a skill. Uh, and the boost is a plus three rather than say advantage or a focus or something like that. It's a little lower, but applicable to a wider range of spells. And backgrounds often offer a choice of feature that lets you kind of color what kind of background it is and tailor it a bit more. So link in the shore notes or go to core20rpg.wordpress.com to see that latest update. And two items on crowdfunding and interesting releases. The crowdfunding side of things, The Last Caravan is a Cars and Aliens tabletop RPG. And this involves friend of the show and supporter, and superb game master Graham Ward. Um, this quirky RPG takes place in the aftermath of a seemingly failed alien invasion. They attacked, and things have been quiet. It seems maybe they were repelled. And you are going to road trip across the United States in a car caravan to try and reach a safer area now that the fighting has stopped. And the, uh, the gameplay is about your road trip across the country and what you experience along the way in this caravan of cars. Uh, created by Ted Bushman, the developmental editor is Graham Ward. It was funded on day one, and you have until June 27th, so something like 12 days, to jump on this. Uh, very affordable. Check it out. It looks really cool. I, I back this, and I really enjoy this. This, to me, sounds like perfect kind of one-shot material to run with friends at a convention or late-night gathering, things like that. And last, DM David releases The Curse of Vecna. This is available on uh, the DMs Guild. Uh, it is his second product that he's releasing. David, we often highlight his blog because it's full of so many awesome insights into the history of D&D, uh, the way DMs run, what players react to. And so he takes all of that knowledge and puts it into the adventures he writes. So his second adventure is called Curse of Vecna. It's for levels 8 to 10. And it starts with a child providing the heroes with a dark note that says that they are responsible for a crime. And uh, of course, there's more to this. And this leads you to a ruined estate cursed by Vecna himself, it seems. So check out this product, The Curse of Vecna on the DMs Guild. We have a link in the show notes as well, but you can find it very easily uh, since it's a very recent product. And always awesome to get a chance to support DM David. So that's our news. If you're watching this, the main segment is something that I'm going to be recording tomorrow with a guest. So uh, unfortunately, you'll have to wait one day for that. But thank you so much for watching. Uh, greatly appreciate it. And I'll see you tomorrow. And now we are here with our main segment for Mastering Dungeons with our awesome guest, Celeste Conowich. Welcome, Celeste. Hello, hello. So excited to be back on the show. We're really happy that you could join us. And I say we as if Sean were here, but he's not. He he's off. He's here traveling. in spirit. He he would like to <laughs> yes, be. Yes. For sure he would. And I know he's he's a little jealous because <laughs> these questions that I'm gonna ask are, are things that we're super excited to know about. Uh so he's gonna have to watch it instead of actually asking the questions, and I'm very sorry for him. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> and so, Celeste, you are here for a number of reasons. Uh, in the past, you've been here because you are an incredibly accomplished game designer. You are a DM that's world-renowned and much more. Your work includes the Venture Maidens. Oh, which I meant to bring my book. It's over on a shelf over there. But the Venture Maidens, Venture, Ma Venture Maidens actual play and role-playing game supplement. Your work for Dungeons & Dragons. Your work for 2C Gaming all kinds of hallowed institutions of gaming. And now you're the senior game designer for Tales of the Valiant for Kobold Press. Yeah, so true. Yep. So I uh, joined the <laughs> Kobold Press. Yeah, uh, team full time uh, a little bit over a year ago, came on as the senior game designer and, of course, went right into lead design on Tales of the Valiant. Yeah, that was uh, wow. <laughs> 
a heck of, a heck of a kickoff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But but I've been a longtime freelancer uh, with Cobalt Press. I've been you know working with them for years and years. So it was a very natural fit uh, awesome. when when I you know. Yeah, I came on full time and love everything they do and happy to be one of the Kobolds these days. That's fantastic. Uh, congratulations, I think, uh, because, wow, that is like, um, yes, that's intimidating <laughs> levels of, of tough. That is that is impressive. You are uh, doing level 20 stuff right now. Um, <laughs> so there are. Yeah, there yeah. are certainly not a lot of full time uh, game designers uh, out there. So I'm very, I'm very lucky to be here and certainly, you know, always want to do the title proud. Yeah, well, you are. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for living the dream for those of us who live it vicariously through you. Um, <laughs> all right. So so and I'm, I want to get all into the tales of Valiant, uh, which I know uh, folks want to as well, like in our Discord, Patreon, Patreon Discord, they are always asking, you know, about tales of Valiant and the design choices and all these kinds of things. So so this is I know a lot of folks are very interested in hearing about that. But before we go there, looking back on your career, uh, I have kind of three questions. Number one, one of the favorite things you have designed. Ooh, oh man, that's that's hard. Uh, obviously, well, doing the Venture Maidens campaign guide, so creating mm. a whole book based on the world of this podcast and stream was pretty exciting uh, from top to bottom. Definitely like a dream project there. Um, but you know that that probably doesn't count as like the, obviously right. Um, on otherwise, I think some of the, my favorite things I've designed have been alternate like systems or things that really kind of crack open 5e and do some mm. interesting stuff comes to mind in the actually in Cobalt Press, the Tome of Heroes book, yeah. I designed a draconic rune casting system, which is like an alternative like spell casting system where you can pair different words basically uh, of like the draconic language and then make your own spells. So that kind of stuff where you get to like really get into it and yeah, do creative yeah. stuff. Ooh, I just love it. I love Lots it. Lots of flavor. Um, also like the, the kind of work I got to do on, you know, Kingdoms and Warfare for MCDM. Yeah. Like that is also those really weird kind of mechanics, mm -hmm. like making these factions and how do they work and like bringing, you know, war into D&D. &D. Those kind of challenges just wreck my world. That's great. Yeah, MCDM is good for that sort of bizarre stuff where they go like, yeah, give me the the weird. Thinking like, outside the box. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked about all the cool stuff you've done. My second question is, what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? I would say uh, be prepared to work so much harder than you think you're going to. <laughs> um, and then cultivate your relationships mm. uh, in the space like the the best thing you can do is support other creators um because it's always the creators who come at the end of the day to support you yeah. right i wouldn't be anywhere here if i hadn't tried to you know do my work with kindness with empathy um mm -hmm. and responsibility nice i love that honestly yeah. so keep that in mind you're not you're not here alone i think is the That's big great. the big point fantastic um all right so Let's say you're doing a special episode of the Venture Maidens and you get to invite one person on to join the team. Who would it be? Oh, my gosh. That is so hard. These are good questions. You're like, really? We're going right for it. I'm enjoying it. Um, <laughs> I would probably if I could get anyone, I would probably want to pick like one of my favorite authors or maybe mm. someone who like turned me on to the fantasy genre. I don't know, maybe like a like a Tamora Pierce would mm -hmm. be so cool uh, yeah, to have on yeah. or like Tamsin Muir, like yeah. of the Gideon series like that. I just I would love to have a famous like femme author on nice. there and just like see what what that was like. Yeah. Other than yeah. us all being shell shocked as, as yeah. heck because it would be so cool. But yeah, I, I tend to always go to movies like like a Sigourney Weaver kind of thing. Like I just like that. I, well, oh, my God, that'd be so cool. Right. Just like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, destroy. I, I, by the way, speaking of fantasy authors, I saw your uh, epic fantasy YouTube video, which was fantastic. Um, that you did. With Yay. Oh, with World Anvil. World yeah. Anvil. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that was really good. I, so, I mean, obviously, epic fantasy, high fantasy, those are huge in the front of my mind since those are really what we're hammering with the Tales of the Valiant. Mm -hmm. We're focusing very, very much on that 
aspect yeah. of um of you know in our, our evolution of 5e and just really trying to bring that to the forefront so at the top of my mind all the time <laughs> so it's always <laughs> fun to talk about uh, and in our show notes, we've got here that you have a website, CelesteConowich.com, so everybody can head there and be uh, reading over it and finding out all your exploits while we talk about uh, these other topics. And then at the end of the show, we're also going to ask where you'd like to be found. But let's talk about this amazing Kickstarter. It is Tales of the Valiant RPG, which is ending June 23rd. It is the 14th, the day this drops, which is also the day we're recording. This is all very, it's, it's almost live. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Tales of the Valiant says it's got kind of two nice quotes that I like here at the top of the Kickstarter page. It says the new Tales of the Valiant RPG keeps the fifth edition community independent and tabletop moving forward. Use it to tell your own tales of 5e high adventure. And then it says Tales of the Valiant TOV keeps all the best of 5e D&D and adds a cobbled press spin to the well-loved game. It combines the Creative Commons Foundation of 5th edition with new elements to create a powerful, kobold-style 5e with teeth. That's great. Is that Wolfgang? Is that you? Who wrote that? Yeah. That's nice. That's Wolfgang? Yeah. I, what a, it was definitely one of us bouncing that around. Um, but that's certainly something, you know, whoever said it, we brought it up and we're like, yeah, that's that's <laughs> the way. I mean, yeah, we're probably best words. known, you know, for our Tome of Beasts, our, our giant monster compendium. Mm -hmm. So... People know, uh, people know we've got teeth. We've got sharp yeah. little cobalt teeth. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> incorporate I've, that. On our Discord, we often hear people talking about, I used cobalt press monsters and people felt it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, That's I, uh, there's nothing, nothing like scaring your players with a TOB, <laughs> you know, monster. They're like, wait, what is this? I'm sorry, <laughs> it just did what? <laughs> Oh, it's glorious. Awesome. Awesome. So I've got a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes. Uh, we'll also put it in, in the YouTube video, but uh, it's, it's easy. Go to Kickstarter, search for Tales of the Violent. It'll pop right up. Um, so I want to go back to how this all started, because Sean and I were fascinated by RPG design and how companies approach projects. A lot of the folks listening to this will have heard of Project Black Flag, which really got talked a, a lot about after the OG after and during the OGL debacle. But this, uh, it seems like this project had been in the works before that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when I was brought on, uh, originally, you know, before the, before the eventful January, uh, <laughs> that we all remember so well, um, this was a project that was already well underway. Mm. Cobalt Press has been along around for a long time, making fifth edition for its entire history. We made stuff for, you know, Pathfinder, like it's, it's a company that's been here for a while. And of course, when you are a company that's been in the space, of course, plans to make your own game, your own home system are the ultimate goal, right? So all of that process was already starting. We were already looking at what we can build with this foundation and this audience that loved fifth edition and our, loved our fifth edition products. Um, so that was all in progress. Of course, when January hit, it <laughs> went full throttle. But the good news is we were intellectually prepared uh for for this project and and what is it specifically that makes um a company like cobalt press want to create their own spin is it is it just is it that you're working so well, i shouldn't even try to answer the question i can think of ideas but I, but i guess i'm drawn to sort of what is it that makes you cobalt press not just want to create Tome of Beasts and a book on magic and uh, adventures, but to really say like, I we want to we want to create the the all of it. We want to have the version of it. What 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 is the spark of that? Yeah, so I think the big thing is just uh, the the security of it. You know, taking control of your own future, having mm -hmm. something that is truly yours, uh, because as a third party company making you know 5e that's always what your label is going to be you're always mm -hmm. going to be a third party uh, it's never going to come directly from you and while that can be really lucrative of course to provide support for popular games the future is uncertain 
in that model. I've, as we've seen, we don't really know what the history of Dungeons and Dragons is. We can guess, we're sort of hearing things, uh, pieces come in all the time, but even what we're hearing now isn't a guarantee that that will be the same in five years, in 10 years. So when you do choose to make your own core system like this, you're investing in yourself, in your team. You're saying our future is under our control, uh, which is, I mean, it feels good from, uh, you know, the team perspective, like we all feel like we have more ownership mm -hmm. over something that is our own. Uh, and then also just from a practical security standpoint, um, by building this foundation, we are ensuring that we will be here making games for the people we love for a very long time. And now you've chosen to make a, a as in the quote that we read at the beginning, that's on the Kickstarter page, a, a game that is really using the core of what fifth edition has to it so it's very familiar it feels like 5e yeah. there's a variant of it um did gold press consider creating an entirely new game system that wouldn't be like dnd yeah i think from the beginning of this we always knew it was going to be built on the back of 5e just in the way that like we really love a lot of things about 5e. Um, we've all been lifetime D&D players, <laughs> right? right? We've grown with the game. We've played it forever. I've, I myself have been GMing for 15 years, right? Like, so we all love this game and the pieces of it. And we also have a, such a great deal of mastery over mm -hmm. 5e as well. Like the, the products we've been putting out, the way we've been thinking about it, the way we, we've been expanding it with everything that we have on the table it just would have felt like a shame to us to discard all of that work and all of that like thought we've put in it to it too. And then also thinking about our audience, like our audience, our fans are used to 5e and we don't want to shell shock them with <laughs> doing something completely different, pulling the cord out. Um, so we want, we want them to feel comfortable. We want them to feel secure in this new game and preserve a lot of the things we love about fifth edition were so important for us to bring into this game that it did seem like the better choice than you know wrecking it all down and building <laughs> from the ground up yeah okay that's cool that's neat i i, I dig that that's and, and it makes a lot of sense to hear you say it that way yeah um and and i i get that because i like 5e a whole lot too and and i like right the, there's the... so much good stuff in it we love it and like we want to keep it yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> we want to keep we definitely think there are some things we could add or some things we would like to do different, uh, you know, some teeth we want to put on it. Mm. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's so much good there to keep. So you so you all know that you want to do this. And now the time is now because this OGL mess is is uh, creating an incredible opportunity and need. And yes. now everybody at Cold Press is sitting around the table saying, OK, uh, the table slash Zoom call to say, okay, we need to do this project. How do you even approach a project like that? Like, can you take us back to what, what did you do to even wrap your hands around the enormity of, yeah. of what you're trying to accomplish? Right. Um, yeah, I think from the beginning, yeah, that sense of scale is, it was tremendous because mm -hmm. most of the time uh, you have two or three people who make an RPG from scratch, they build the game, it's all good, and then they maybe pitch it to a company or sell it or yeah. you know involve this production team. We've been doing this as an entire collective from the beginning, which has its benefits and certainly its challenges um, in this. So I think we're still answering every day, like how how best to approach these things right because it is every corner you turn there's something new you have to consider or work with or be flexible about um so i think our our big thing was we wanted to start getting playtest material out as early as possible a lot of people came back at us and said why did you put out this playtest this doesn't feel like it's polished and i'm like no no it's it's a playtest like very very intentionally <laughs> uh -huh, that thing uh -huh. but we felt perhaps the the impulse just to start getting things out the door and getting them in front of the people we were making it for. So I think that was our core decision here because at the end of the day, we realized this game has to do a lot of things. It has to exist in a way that's comfortable for our audience. It has to make them happy. It has to make them feel like they're playing 5e 
but stay true to all the stuff they love about Cobalt Press. So mm -hmm. the biggest way we could do that is by getting it in the hands of people and, you know, inviting them to throw sticks and stones at it <laughs> and seeing what what was working and what wasn't. We learned so much so much from even those small initial like stumbling playtests to the bigger ones this and we're still learning stuff all the time as we are continuing through playtests this entire time that's awesome yeah so um i mean that seems to me like a really tough task because it's one thing when you're inward facing you're saying okay you know let's build this thing let's design this rpg but now you're also saying and then let's package it up for other people to look at and let's listen to them and read all these comments and distill that. Woo. <laughs> Isn't that a lot of work? <laughs> yeah. It's um if yeah, if you all have never experienced a play test, um, I encourage you to do so. It it teaches you a lot about yourself, about ego, and about teamwork <laughs> um, to an extreme degree. But even through how painful playtesting can sometimes be it, it it really is just the best way to get the read of the room obviously you know you're going to get those 20 percent or so of people who just are going to hate it no matter what you do and want to be there to hate it or those 20 percent of people who are like i love it unconditionally and you're like well well that okay but like that <laughs> that other that 60 percent, that's super good super good involved feedback because the honestly one of the big challenges was that with this project all the way through has been identifying what do people want to keep about 5e and what do they want to change and of yeah. course we all have our individual ideas about what that means like what we want to see change but a lot of these things it's like we'll try something and then realize based on feedback people aren't ready for that change mm. or mm. they'll say why haven't you changed this and we're like we did not expect you to be okay removing alignment like wholesale mm. from 5e right like that was one right. of those little things that popped up people are like why are you even bothering with alignment yeah. we're like yeah. wow okay sure sure or you know some <laughs> of our term changes that we tried out people are like i hate that and we're oh okay yeah no worries we're gonna walk it back like in the alpha you know mm -hmm. this kind of like give and take stuff um has been so important to get the read read on the pulse of how people are feeling about fifth edition and what they would want out of a new game a new wow. version of it and there must be like a cycle that takes place where you work on something and then you want to share it, but but then maybe you start advancing. You want to advance your design further, but the answer isn't back on what people think about it. Like, how does it mess up the whole schedule to have to work with these packets? I mean, I, I get it that overall it's good, but it's got to be tough at times. It is. It's really, really hard um, in terms of development because it is a lot of starting and stopping and like, OK, you know, this class is out now for playtesting. We have to put this down. We have to put this down and not look at it while we do this all this other stuff but luckily i mean the scale of work is so large there's been plenty to work on in the meantime but it is certainly yeah communication has been critical on the internal team because you know you change this one thing here that impacts art that impacts layout the fact that this change has to come in due to play test means that uh oh those files that we were preparing for the next play test have to change like who's doing that who's managing that so <laughs> It's a huge effort. And I think people people treat us like Wizards of the Coast, which is very um, <laughs> nice, I guess. Like, like, thank you. You think of us like that. But we have maybe 15, 15 like full time employees. Maybe at Cobalt Press, we have nowhere near the resources of Goliath. Uh, we, we are just all David's running around here like, oh, man that's that's really neat that yeah. <laughs> that yes yeah <laughs> so it's been a, a huge amount of work a huge amount of coordination i could not be doing it without the very very talented and wonderful team i'm surrounded by that's awesome to hear and, and, and all the experience that yeah. cobalt press has yeah yeah and speaking of that so you know when you're trying to create this project um how do you even begin to organize? How do you create the, the processes to have proper internal discussion, make sure the best ideas rise to the top, uh, that everybody's heard, that the staff is uh, as fresh as can be? Because I mean, I, I can't imagine this is possible without some overworking, but 
But how do you even handle that organizationally? Or do you just go and, and fix as you go, <laughs> as you proceed? <laughs> I I think because this is brand new for us, you know, building, mm -hmm. building an entire RPG, one brand new, uh, building an RPG off the back of an RPG with an audience that has such high expectations and involvement in the game. Uh, and then, you know, our team is growing all the time, obviously, to accommodate this this huge amount of work. So we are we are growing. Uh, we're constantly working with a huge team of freelancers, some who have worked for Cobalt Press for years and some who are obviously brand new to us and them. So a lot of those relationships and the way we're communicating, there have been some stumbles along the way as we're trying to, like, find that format and really get things that work. Uh, but we're improving all the time on this, creating mm -hmm. our systems of communication, our various teams, right? Like we, we have, you know, our development team that goes through and like, these are the three people who have to look at everything at this point. And then we, we yeah. send it to our like internal play testers, right? Who like worked for us for years and stuff like on that. And then maybe our three like dev people have to go back and look at that. And then yeah. at this point we release it to like marketing who, you know, adds their feedback in. So these processes are evolving, but I think our strategy is try to put it through as many people and places get as many eyes on it as possible because again mm -hmm. this is a game that we're trying to make for a lot of people um so the more people who weigh in the better so making sure to take the time and getting this in front of people is yeah. is been huge yeah. and certainly not what you normally do with an rpg um at this point in the dev cycle but we're, we're giving yeah. it our best it's <laughs> awesome we're inviting um, everyone into the room right exactly exactly <laughs> well thank you for doing that um so in terms of the, the the project goals, so you've mentioned uh, the with teeth, which for sure seems to me like one of those like big. If if this were if we were playing Fate uh, <laughs> or Fiasco and make an RPG, hopefully not Fiasco, yes. uh, you would have you know like okay, with teeth could be one. Uh, what are some other kind of goals or monikers that that sort of guide you and the team on on creating Tales of the Valiant? Like what are those upper level goals and aspects? Yeah, well, another one of our, our taglines that I really like is the be bold, be brave, mm -hmm. be valiant. Mm -hmm. Like, and that is feeding a lot into the game. Like, this game bleeds heroic fantasy, mm -hmm. which you would think would be like, oh, of course, all fantasy games of 5e has that. 5e tries to do a lot of things and kind of shies away from defining itself in a particular niche or genre. So we're going hard. We're going really hard in that heroic aspect here. So we're looking at things and like we look at this option, we're like, oh, is this too, uh, I don't know, maybe this isn't the right thing for the core book, right? Mm -hmm. the, there's that that kind of give and take and back and forth to really make sure that we're we're being very clear about what the fantasy genre is, how you can mm -hmm. tell stories with it, and also trying to empower people to be part of that storytelling in a lot of ways. So one of our other big goals for this is to reduce GM burden. Mm. 5e is great, but mm -hmm. doesn't provide a lot of tools to make the GM's life easier. Or if they are, they're tools that the GM has to seek out yeah. and then incorporate and then use. So we're trying to be really clever about the way we're doing things to reduce complexity on the GM side and also empower the players to be more involved in a way that's helpful. Um, and we can see this in like little things like the way we've redesigned backgrounds, right? How they now have like an adventuring motivation table, right? That you roll mm -hmm. on. So this from the beginning trains a PC to think about why am I here adventuring and builds that into their story rather than maybe running into the situation where the PC has to justify why they're here. Or the GM has to work really hard mm -hmm. to get them involved in this heroic story, right? That's just like one example of the kind of things we're, we're trying to bake in uh, and be clever about uh, when we're talking about heroic fantasy. And Sean and I are currently reviewing the the DMG, as you know, and, and we're, we're looking at the 2014 one and thinking about what could be. And, and this comes up all the time, the, the kinds of things that you're talking yeah. about. But but what I'm interested in when it comes to Tales of the Valiant is that you don't have a DMG. You've got a player's book and a, and a monster book. Um, so where do you put this information? How do you handle that? And, and what sort of led to not having a, yeah. a third core book? Yeah, well, we looked at the, the books and said, well, you know, the DMG isn't doing much for fifth edition now. <laughs> so what if we really took the parts 
that do a lot for it and matter and we mm. put them in the player's guide so everybody feels like a player and mm. everybody is more an agent of this game right we thought it was actually quite nice the fact that like how to be a game master and that high level kind of stuff is going to be available for the mm. players to read and mm. look at so perhaps they have a better understanding of what the amount of work mm. and the job that their game master has um, at this table here and then of course we decided monster statistics are probably the only thing that you really need to keep hidden uh, mm -hmm. from your players so that made sense to keep them in the monster vault but we are i mean we are including gm facing advice in the players book we have a whole chapter called running the game mm -hmm. on it uh and it's going to cover the real basics that you need to know like how to plan sessions, how to deal with scheduling, how to deal with problem players, how to use safety tools, things like that, as well as the actual real basic stuff you need to know, like what is a dungeon hazard? How does it work? Like that, that kind of stuff that you need to run adventures, you need to run basic games. Uh, and then we're gonna save complicated stuff, like the ways you can make your game more complex or the ways you could change systems, or perhaps another release one day. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, and all of this approach has been validated pretty well with a Kickstarter that, and I even last, I think it was like yesterday, almost, last night, yeah. wrote at almost 920,000. And it's like at 923. So I can take out that word almost. So, it, you know, you're... Think, I think we're going to hit a million and we're so excited about I it. I think you are. And and that's quite yeah. the feat in, in this era uh, where Kickstarters are very heavy at the first stage. And, and But I think you will. And, and you've got more than 7,700 backers. I have to update that too. So it's clearly doing really well in the last nine days here. That must feel great. Yeah, it's... It does. And I mean, I'm, you know, not going to lie to you. None of us are going to lie to you. Like, this is a huge risk we were taking this whole project. We are, the amount of resources it takes to make something like this happen is, is huge. So if people didn't love it, if people weren't <laughs> here with us, mm -hmm. it wouldn't work. Yeah. So the minute we, you know, we all hit that, that like launch button, we're all sitting there going, uh, is this our future, right? Should we look for other jobs? Like, what do you, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, and then seeing that, that's just staggering support right out the gate was just so validating and honestly so necessary uh, for our team morale, for our, I think for our fans, for our community. Um, I think in the public too, to, to let people know, like, hey we're serious mm -hmm. that's awesome that's fantastic oh, i'm so glad yeah and i mean especially all the work you're putting into it uh that that is great and and what does that success do i mean obviously it validates and, and encourages but um does this mean yeah like you're talking about like there might be another book or could there be even more or is it too early to tell well I mean, this means I think we we were looking to see if people are interested in a Tales of the Valiant future for Cobalt Press. And I think this is a clear signal that hell yeah, hell yeah, they are. So I think it's safe to say that we are we are moving forward. All things TOV, like putting mm -hmm. the eggs in the basket. It's <laughs> it's happening and we're excited awesome. about being able to do it. That's great. Of um, course, there will be more books, Tales. <laughs> there are always <laughs> more books. <laughs> So this is something like our 23rd Kickstarter or something like I, that's amazing. We've been that making is, books for a long time. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it is great. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, this no is the biggest on one you've had, right? <laughs> so it, it really is. Yes, this is. Yeah. yeah so our our second biggest was Deep Magic 2, mm -hmm. uh, which kickstarted uh, three or four months ago. Uh, and this one has smashed all the records in terms of number of backers, in terms of like money, like it we're just over like so grateful yeah. so grateful and so humbled by this level of support mm -hmm. it's incredible now a lot of folks think uh that in nine days you will all be uh on the beach uh sipping pina coladas or some <laughs> other wonderful beverage but i heard correct me if i'm wrong that there is actually a lot yeah. of work that <laughs> will still continue <laughs> nine days from now uh what yes i think give us yeah. a snapshot of what else you you know nine days from now 
there's there's a ton of stuff you're still doing, right? Like what what is the project doing at that stage? Yeah. So I mean, I, yeah, this is this is so funny when people are like, oh my God, you made a million dollars on Kickstarter. You're all rich, right? And it's like, oh no, this this what this means is that we can bring on more people to help make this even, even better and make sure that that everything goes smoothly. Um, because beyond design, you obviously you have development. Uh, which usually happens like hand in hand with the design team, taking initial designs, looking at playtest feedback, really fine tuning stuff and making sure it all sings. Uh, that is still going to be ongoing. So design development editing really isn't going to stop until we like finally get it all like, okay, no, that's done. We're calling it done. Because uh, we do have that the alpha release of the game that is coming soon. Uh, we've talked about that on on the Kickstarter. So you can think of it like a video game, right? You're going to have that elf in your hand. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure we want to put it out there and we want people to play with it and see what breaks. So mm -hmm. we'll be working on, you know, incorporating and fixing the things that broke with that. And then from there, obviously, we have to go into layout. So working with our graphics team, uh, getting in art from artists, because we've, we've got to get a bunch of art from this book. We've got something like 20 artists right now working on the various pieces of this and monster belt so don't forget we're making two books at the same time literally yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of art pieces that we're getting in we're coordinating making sure they have a home uh making sure that everything fits in these books so working very very closely with that graphics and layout team and then of course layout we have proof editing that's going to come in so that's going to you know the people who fix all of those errors that people love to talk about and play mm -hmm. test feedback um the proofreading will, will all happen and then of course just final quality control checks and then getting it to the printer which itself is a whole like we have a whole production wing that getting it to you know getting the paper making sure it all looks good getting the proofs reviewing the <laughs> proofs uh getting the shipping out like mm -hmm. there's a lot that happens to make a book uh and everything all at once everywhere <laughs> it is, <laughs> Um, yeah. so all of that. <laughs> and then of course, on top of that, you know, something that people are clamoring for and is really important and we're really committed to doing is making sure we have conversion guides, mm -hmm. uh, that come out. So after mm -hmm. the book is done, making sure people have the free tools and resources to be able to use, convert anything from 5e into TOV because you can play anything from 5e at the same table. Mm -hmm. as anything in tov you can mix and match right now but people want ways to convert stuff right. as well so making sure we get those tools out making sure we continue to communicate with our backers and like their expectations are being met like that's cool um it's a, a bunch <laughs> so so this is clearly uh an incredible undertaking and a dream project D dare i ask if uh, you can, through the haze of everything you're involved in right now, think of what else would be a dream project for you? Or are you too in the middle of this to even think about something? <laughs> it's pretty all-consuming um, yeah. right now. But I think what is, what is fun about all of this and seeing this standout audience here, mm -hmm. it's definitely got us, you know, racing with possibilities. Like, okay all right, we have this great new like RPG coming out. Like this is going to be, you know, the heart of our future. Like what else can we build? Mm. What else can we build around this to, to make this really sing? Like it feels like right now, nothing is off the table, right? In this, <laughs> this world of possibility. Yeah. So do we go, what card games? Do we make board games? Do we make like some kind of cool hybrid like system? What do we do with like digital resources for this? Mm. Like we can dare to dream, I think a little bit about yeah. all the stuff that goes around having right yeah. this like this heart this this home system that is yeah. yours so certainly certainly there cool. there are things spinning and we're all very excited about what this <laughs> could potentially you know mean and what we can build now that we have a foundation fantastic well thank you for taking time out of all of this because i know you're so busy uh to to share this with us i i hope That's it helps fair. the project as well um Folks who want yeah. to find never you... too busy to nerd out about games. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> folks who want to find you, where should they look? Where do you hang out? 
Yeah. Um, I am more and more these days very far away from social media, but the, <laughs> the only place I sort of consistently post is on my Twitter, um, at C. Conowich. You can follow me there. Probably that's the best for the, the latest mm -hmm. and greatest updates. Um, of course, as Taylor's mentioned, if you want to see the catalog of my work, things I've worked on, um, head to CelesteConowich.com. That website is sort of mostly updated, uh, so you can find cool links and stuff there. Um, and then just keep your eye on all things Cobalt Press. Um, that's really where I'm hanging out as all this is happening. We have a very, very active Discord community um, that's very involved and loving, you know, talking about Tales of the Valiant, uh, already like planning games, clamoring, you know, like, ooh, <laughs> did you play test this? So like, this is a cool uh -huh. way to go. And, you know, all of the staff reads those comments and gets involved. We even have like a rules, you know, like discussion channel where, you know, we're available to, to just chat and like clarify things. So head over there. It's a, it's a really good time, if nothing else. Very cool. Awesome. All right. So Celeste, now that we're done with this recording, what are we going to do now? Oh, I don't know. Uh, go play some video games. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to let off some steam. Thank you. <laughs> go finish Tears of the Kingdom. Finally, you know. <laughs> you deserve it. We want to thank all of our patrons for allowing us to do this awesome show, uh, to have an excellent guest like Celeste Conwich on the show. We hope that you enjoyed that interview. Thank you to all of our Master of Dungeons supporters. We want to give a special shout out to our Master of Realms and Master of the Universe patrons. Our patrons get access to our show notes with links and other thoughts inside of them. You get to see the raw way we put together the outline of the show and then what really happened. <laughs> and sometimes notes we thought we better not say that live, but they're still in our show notes. Um, you also get some additional exclusive content from time to time. So thank you to our Masters of Realms. You are named in our show notes. We really appreciate your support. And to our Masters of Multiverse, we want to say thank you to Keith Amon of the Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, John Carney, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Laitman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Jim Klinger, aka DM Prime Mover, Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Krishna Simons, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. We truly appreciate it. Uh, you can find us on patreon.com slash mastering dnd if you would like to join the show and have not done so so far if you can leave us a review on apple podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts and on youtube subscribe click on that notification bell icon and that helps us greatly you can find me at alphastream.org from there you can reach all the various socials and other places where i have things including my videos, which uh, this week will include a new success in RPGs video talking about how to use the open gaming license or OGL. Sean, where can we find you? Wait, that's my voice. Sean, where can we find you? You can find me. I'm supposed to be a flump. I don't think that sounds like a flump. But anyway, you can find Sean at, uh, on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, he is also on uh, Mastodon like I am at Dice.Camp. And uh, you can reach us with questions through the at Mastering D&D address on Twitter or on Mastodon through the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. Patreon members, you can talk to us directly on the Discord. Uh, 